preaching is in Isaiah 57, and particularly verse 15. Isaiah 57 and verse 15. For thus saith the High and Lofty One that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with Him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Brethren, as we gather this evening, we do so seeking the Lord's blessing to prepare us both individually but as well corporately that we might come with clear assurances to be met with by God in a favorable way. We have before us one such passage that gives us that assurance. It doesn't do so universally to all men indiscriminately, as we'll see, but it does do so certainly and with firm and certain promises, which promises hold forth the richest of all enjoyments that may be known in this life, as well as the life to come. Well, you'll notice in the text itself several things. The text contains a threefold description of God. He's described as the high and lofty one. And this is contrasting with the idolatry which was characterizing his people. What a shameful thing that his people who have been taught the truth had turned unto idols. And he's saying, I am the high and lofty one. I'm above all that is. I am indeed the most glorious one. The psalmist in Psalm 113 verse 6 says, what an amazing statement, that he humbles himself to view the things of heaven. Imagine that. He transcends heaven itself. Heaven cannot contain him. There's no created sphere of manifesting manifesting his glory that is actually able to contain him. He exceeds all. He is far above what you presently think you understand. He is the high and lofty one. This is, of course, beyond our ability to comprehend, and yet we acknowledge it. Notice as well in this threefold description, he's described as the one that inhabiteth eternity. He dwells in eternity. Now we can get our mind around, though with much difficulty, the idea of continuance and an everlasting duration, but that's not eternity. Duration has a notion of time. If something's continuing, it is doing so within the idea of consecutive moments of existence. So we think of ourselves. We live 20, 40, 80 years or more, and we're going through time with a succession of moments. And it's true, each of us, and we ought to take this to heart with great seriousness, each of us will continue for everlasting time whether in heaven forever or in hell forever. But that's not strictly and properly eternity because eternity is timeless. We aren't eternal. We don't inhabit eternity. God is the great I am that I am. And we say, that's too much for me. Of course it is because He's the transcendent, almighty God who inhabits who dwells in, who is himself eternal. Notice, moreover, in this threefold description, it says that his name is holy. What absolute audacity and profanity it would be to take to ourselves as if to identify what we are absolutely, the name holy. Though God calls us saints, holy ones, We know instantly that that's a derived 
appellation. It's something that's given to us by virtue of Christ and His righteousness and the Spirit working within us. We've been given a new name, but we also have the remembrance of an old name, which was profane and which was indeed corrupt. But God always, because He is, He always is holy. Never once, as it were, taking a glance with the slightest thought of a delight in sin. Isn't it shameful, Christian, when you catch your mind thinking, not really engaging in it, but thinking, well, that's a sinful thing, and oh, well, there's some... And we catch ourselves and we say, what profanity is in me that I would even entertain the thought that sin, speech, of thought, of, of action, would ever be pleasant. Well, God is a perfect holiness. Well, this helps us see things that will come. You'll notice the text also contains a further twofold description of God by describing His dwelling place. He dwells in a high and holy hill, holy place. This speaks of heaven transcending all. To dwell means that's where He abides. He has settled down there. But notice the second is that he says, with him also, that is of a contrite and humble spirit. This is what we'll focus on in a large way. One man says that a broken heart is God's lesser or second heaven. Think of that. What an insight that God loves to dwell with those who are broken. And isn't it the opposite of our own thoughts? So soon as we become broken, so soon as trials grip us, we start to think, I'm all alone and I have no hope. But God actually is saying, when you're broken, that is indeed the sphere in which I love to dwell and to know you in intimacy. Notice as well in the text a description of the one with whom he holds fellowship, this contrite and this humble one. The word contrite literally means powder, crushed. Sometimes we think of contrition and we simply relate that to conviction. Well, it's related to conviction. But people can be convicted and not contrite. People can become convicted and remain as bold and daring in the face of God and the face of men as they were before. To be contrite is to be crushed. Humble means to be low. This is the one with whom God dwells. And notice as well, before moving on, he explains his gracious work. What does he do? as He dwells with these who are broken and contrite. Well, He doesn't just sit there and commiserate. Notice He says, I do so to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. The heart, the inward man. The word here, revive, can be translated simply as to live. But when it is with reference to causation. It means to make to live. And so he's making one who is in one sense dead, broken, cast down, crushed. He's making that one now to live. Well, the text, while certainly reproving the arrogant as preceding demonstrates, the text emphasizes here God's fellowship with those who are broken and holds forth the assurance of His delight in dwelling with those who are crushed. So here we have this truth. The glorious God. All of what He said of Himself. The glorious God holds forth hope to the broken in heart. And not just some unclear hope, but the certain hope of enjoying His fellowship and being renewed unto new levels of true and spiritual life. Brethren, this is by no means unique 
here, why should it be? Because God is ever addressing broken ones and giving encouragement. You can see it just as a few examples. Psalm 34 and verse 18. We'll sing this, Lord willing, later. But notice here, Psalm 34 and verse 18. The Lord is nigh, near, unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Here is a testimony of His mercy and His delight to draw near to those who are so broken. Notice as well in the Psalter, Psalm 138, and you'll see there at verse 6, a similar and confirming testimony. Psalm 138, and at verse 6, Though the Lord, that is Jehovah, the I Am that I Am, be high, yet He hath respect, regard, unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. Think of the Beatitudes, as many of them focus upon the meek, those who are broken, those who hunger and thirst, and great blessings are promised to them. And likewise, how we are exhorted, both in James and in the epistles of Peter, to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and that He giveth more grace unto the humble. So brethren, think of how different this truth is to the world. Because the world says, put on your best face, do all that you can to be self-reliant, self-sufficient. And whereas there may be truth to those things in some sense, yet there is no truth to those things in the most meaningful way of our own spiritual enjoyment, when it is that we're convicted and broken and feel the adverse circumstances weighing upon us, we are to act as if those aren't the case, but rather to come under them and to remember that God regards us, looks to us, and says, I will be with you, and I will renew you. Well, let's look at two things before taking up applications. Firstly, the nature of the contrite heart. And secondly, the reviving of the contrite heart. We realize that some may indeed be full of much encouragement, even now. This past week perhaps has been a season of much that has strengthened their souls and they stand, as it were, with tremendous joy and the eating and drinking already of the enjoyment of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust that none of this will contradict their experience because if it is that they're rejoicing in the Lord, it's because they have a contrite heart that is now helped by the presence of God. And yet others may indeed have experienced through their own self-examination the discovery of sins that they've seen in the past and have thought they've made advances against only to discover that they're still present with a degree of strength that they did not realize. And yet others still may, through no fault of their own, so considered, be in the midst of tremendous afflictions and heavy burdens that Satan takes advantage of to say unto us, you are left alone. And God has forsaken you. So we can see that the text before us provides much help both to those who are being strengthened as well as to those who are in the midst of the experience of their brokenness. Well, firstly, then the nature of the contrite heart. What is this contrite heart? Well, we've already looked at the word, which means crushed. And so we can think of things that are pulverized and beaten over and over again. And when it is, they become broken up. And so we think of some types of rock that are crushed to make gravel. Well, they don't appear in nature in those little tiny pieces, but rather because they've been broken, they've been crushed and are able to be spread out. What once was a great rock face 
or what once was a great rock buried in the belly of the earth has been broken up and is now made quite small. But how instructive that is. What once was big is now small. Isn't it true that men in their pride are big? They think themselves as put together. They think themselves as in control. And in the Scriptures, it's hard for us to find a greater example than Nebuchadnezzar who looks out at his great empire and says, is not this what I've done? And how men love to boast of themselves. And no more do they love to boast than in spiritual things. And though they do it not with their lip in public, yet is it not the case that within their own consciences they often condemn others in order to puff themselves up. Christ gives us a display of this in His parable when He speaks of the one who had come near unto the temple and says, I thank Thee, O God, that I'm not like other men are, even like this tax collector, this publican. That Pharisee was big in his own eyes. He thought himself measured up to the standard of God's righteousness. And this is the truth of all false religion. Whether it goes under the label of a form of Christianity, or if it goes in the most pagan an idolatrous way that there is known among men. False religion is ever testifying to men in a variety of ways. You've got it, and you're doing it, and you've got it all together so that they're big. But in the end, what happens, if converted, is the Lord smashes that so that they become small. They become aware that they're nothing. In the presence, notice, of the high and lofty one. So think of Saul of Tarsus. He's going out, and what's he doing? He's breathing out threats unto the church. He's going to go in great zeal, but a zeal that was not according to knowledge. And he's going with great earnestness, and yet earnestness misdirected. And he's thinking to have righteousness according to the law. And then think of this. In the moment that Christ appears to him, Saul is brought extremely low. He has as himself blinded so that now he who was leading others to capture others and lead them away has to be led by others. He's brought low. And this is true, of course, not only in these supernatural and extraordinary ways, but in the more ordinary ways of God working in the life of God of sinners. They may be well put together. They may be constitutionally with the personality of not being one who boasts, but they're quite content on the inside with themselves. They've got their ways. They've got it together. Everything's in order. Everything's the way that they think it should be. And who's the one to thank for it? Themselves. But though there be not such open display to others and perhaps never a spoken word to others of their own greatness, yet the one who sits on the throne of their heart is themselves. Well, this, of course, the Lord abhors. He despises pride. And He most certainly despises it in spiritual things. Well, the Lord then, when working graciously, addresses that. And he brings those who are proud low. What is it? Well, it's a spirit, notice. It's the spirit that is broken. It's the spirit that is crushed and low. It is the inner man that is addressed. And so you can think of it this way. You take a man and you put him in the same exact circumstances of Job. His body consumed. His whole life absolutely wrecked. And yet he can still be as arrogant and puffed up on the inside, never once losing so much as an inch from the spiritual height of the idol of himself. That's not contrition. You see, affliction may be a means to it, but affliction is not contrition. Rather, it's the spirit being brought low. It's the inward man 
being abased. And so the opposite can be true. There may be a man who has everything going the way that even the world would say would be good. Job is going well, family is going well, health is excellent, everything's going smoothly, as smoothly as one could desire. And yet, the Word of God comes, pierces the heart, and though nothing on the outside changes so far as health and strength and friendships and family, yet his inner man is now crushed. You see, contrition is a spiritual work of the Lord to abase man and to remind man there's only one who is great, and it's God, not man. Now think for a moment how opposite this is from the world's message. The world wants everyone to be extremely uh, great and big and large, and indeed, even churches have capitulated on this theme because they want to serve men, because men have become the focus instead of serving God. And so God has become small, which then allows them to compromise His ordinances, change up the things He's ordained, and the justification is, well, because we're trying to reach men. The problem is the fundamental starting point is off. There's only one who is worthy of our obedience. One whose word alone is worthy of our full embrace. And it's God. One who is great. One who is uh, glorious. And it's God. All of which we've briefly touched on already. So soon as a man gets a sight of that, his heart is brought low. Remember Isaiah? In the year that King Uzziah died, listen to the language. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And what was being cried out? Holy, holy, holy. He's filling the manifestation of heaven. And Isaiah is then crushed so that he says, Woe is me. I, hear the language, am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Lips, Isaiah, that's your problem. Your speech, that's your problem. He says, oh, when once God is seen to be in the greatness and holiness of what He is, there's nothing that is a small sin. Everything is overwhelming. And so Isaiah is brought low. But it may not only be that one is brought to be crushed by their own conviction, it may as well be that they're crushed by virtue of the world, by virtue of their circumstances. They are brought to grieve over the sins of others. This has an effect upon the gracious heart. Psalm 119 includes this several times, that our eyes pour out tears not just because of our sins, but because of the sins we see in others. We see iniquity in the world, and how can that not cause our hearts to break? Because God, who is worthy of honor, is being dishonored. And oh, when it is that it's one near to us, a co-worker perhaps, a spouse, a, a parent, a child, oh, how our hearts are broken over these things. And it's not because we have participated with or condoned. We may have indeed reproved the very sins that grieve us. But it grieves us still, both because there's a sincere love for the well-being of others, and there's a sincere desire for the glory of God, which is not being given. And this injures us, and it hurts us, and we cry out in desperation, Oh God, how long shall it ever be? that this continues. We see people laugh at idolatry and we can remember with foolishness how once we laughed at similar things and yet now idolatry burdens us because our great and good God is dishonored. See, the sins of others 
crushes us. Remember Nehemiah. Remember Ezra. Various different places of their own ministries. They hear the sins of others and they rend their garments before the Lord. Remember Ezra when he finds out what the nobles had done? And he doesn't just reprove them. Oh, he reproves them. But he himself is humbled and abased before the Lord. He's broken over the sins that he's not committed. He's hurt inwardly and his heart is no longer whole because he sees the brokenness of a miserably sin-cursed world. And the more that that's realized in the church, among the covenant people of God, oh, the pain of the heart of such who sees these things. See, these experiences are not so simple. It's not only, well, I've, convict, I've committed this sin, so I'm convicted, and so on. There can be the remembrance of past sins. And it may not even be our sins. Maybe other sins. It may be the impact of other sins against us. Think of Jeremiah who sunk into the mire. You think of others whose hands and feet have been burdened with shackles upon them. And the misery heightened so that they cry out to God because broken. You see, all of this comes in one way equal to all men. All men, believer and unbeliever, may know what it is to be humbled in some measure, in some way, but the contrition of which God is speaking is not the contrition that an unbeliever experiences in the agony of a broken world. Judas Iscariot was not biblically contrite in this way when he was cut to the heart, he returned the 30 pieces of silver, and he, in the end, took his own life. There's a way in which, of course, it's legitimate to say, well, he was broken, but he wasn't graciously broken. And God did not dwell with him. Because what's going on here is one who is being reordered unto God. Their self-confidence is shattered. Their self-righteousness is ripped from them. Their confidence in this world is emptied. And they see there's no hope in this world. There's no hope in me. My only hope is in God. So notice then, Secondly, the reviving of the contrite heart. You have a beautiful display of this in Psalm 51. Of course, David was guilty of heinous and personal sin. And yet he's brought low. You think, he has his sin, he has the consequences of his sin, the brokenness of the circumstances around him, He has his rebellious son. All of these things are being used by the Lord in an orchestration of tremendous grace toward David so that David then acknowledges, as it is in verse 8, that his bones are broken. And he acknowledges that the sacrifice of God is indeed a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, Thou wilt not despise. See in verse 17, these are the things that David has come to desire, to offer to God a broken heart. Not as he stood when the time of kings going off to war came and he saw Bathsheba and said, well, that's what I want. No, now I realize my orientation is to God. What is this reviving? How did David uh, get revived and so on? Well, let's be clear. Firstly, what this is, it's not the restoring of pride. So, for instance, one can be brought low, crushed by their circumstances, even temporarily convicted over their sins with some degree of significance, and yet that passes and they get right back on their path. This is why when you read the history of revival, you'll hear pastors as recorded in the time and then looking back on the time saying the evidence is not the moment. The evidence is years down the road. 
And so when a child comes and says, you know, I, I think I'm trusting in the Lord, parents will say, well, there's no confidence for that. But they also don't jump up and down and say, we are most certainly converted. Because there needs to be the evidence and fruit. You don't want to give false assurance. And you also don't want to deny right encouragement. And this is the art, not manufactured by men, but the spiritual art requiring God's wisdom to shepherd souls, both as parents and friends, as pastors and elders, that we give encouragement without giving false assurance. Well, this is because, even as Christ says in the parable on the soils, that there are two soils, remember, that give some evidence of seeming life. But the one has no root and so fails, and the other is surrounded by the cares of this world and so gets choked out. So one of the four is the evidence of true grace. And how is it evident? It bears fruit for the duration of its existence. You think of the unfortunate delusion that has crept upon many. They get someone in a teary moment with moving rhetoric, perhaps true uh, messages, and yet in the moment they get a person to pray a prayer, and then when the prayer is prayed, they say, you are most certainly converted. All of us have had tracts. We've read it and we've looked at it and said, if you're convicted, pray this prayer and now you're a Christian and go tell others about your faith. And we try to search the Scripture but we don't find that pattern. The false assurance given does far more danger for the person and for generations of the church because the person, if not converted and now assuming himself or herself well, is going to wreak havoc upon the church. This is where you get the notion of carnal Christianity. They're unconverted. There's no such real thing as that, of course. But they're unconverted. They think they're fine. They're inoculated now and hardened against the Scripture, and they think everything's well and good. And what's happened is they were brought low for a moment naturally, and now they've been restored through false comfort, and now they think themselves well, but what's actually happened is the idol of self which took a hit has now been fortified and strengthened all with the appearance of Christianity. And it's far worse. It's twice now the child of hell than once it was. This is the agonizing impact of superficial, false evangelicalism that plagues the land today. False assurance is a scourge and has done tremendous damage to the cause of Christ in this nation. Notice this is why, obviously, among other reasons, that Christ, God, is so clear when He says in verse 20 after our passage, but the wicked are like the troubled sea, and when it, cannot rest, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. There's no peace. It's not there. It's like when Christ says, it is because there is no life in you. There's not a whisper of it. There's not a little measurement of it. There's none. So contrition is not the restoring unto a self-contentment even with the bandages of religion. Rather, the reviving of the contrite one is by the enlivening grace of God abiding in the heart of the one that is broken. Do you notice how the text says this? I dwell with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. He dwells with him. He doesn't just pat him on the head, wipe off the tear, and say, now, you know, clean yourself up and get on to life. He actually now inhabits, dwells with, fellowships with the one who's broken. And so there's a relationship established of communing with whom? The high 
and lofty one whose name is holy. And what you start to see is all of these connections, as for instance, why John says, you know, the one that says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. Why is that? Because if the, he knows the Lord, he knows the Holy One, the High and Lofty One, and the High and Lofty One is dwelling in him. Could, is it feasible in our minds, possible to consider that the High and Lofty One would stomach and tolerate no change in a life and permit and continue to allow one to just feed upon the vanity of the world? It's unthinkable once we start to see these things. Whereas the world has every reason to say, well, it's certainly possible. When you start to see the reality of true religion, biblical religion, the triune God in grace, giving life to one and dwelling in them, their life is transformed forever. Yes, of course, there will be sins that are committed. There will be indeed those seasons of backsliding. And yet, as one's life is assessed throughout the duration of their time in this world, there will be the evidence of progressive holiness. Fruitfulness will be shown. Some more, some less. But all truly and really. Why? Because when God revives a contrite heart, He dwells in them. Think for a moment how Paul makes this connection in an exhortation in the book of 2 Corinthians. He's setting forth the covenant promises that are given to His people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he's addressing the fellowship that cannot exist between righteousness and unrighteousness. This is what he says in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 6. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols, for ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord." What follows, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Why? Because when God truly crushes a heart, He's making a place for Him to dwell in. In our area, of course, You can see this as an illustration. There are some places where houses or buildings are going to be established and in order to establish it, the ground has to be blown up. And so sometimes you're passing through a highway and it says no phone zone. Why? Because there's blasting in the area. You don't want signals to get crossed and inadvertently supposedly set off the dynamite or the blasting agent. Others have said, I want my house here, but it's set upon certain stone that has to be blasted in order for the house to be established and to be firmly settled. And so it is for the Lord in our heart. He blasts us. For what reason? In order to make a place where He can abide. Where He can dwell. And when the Lord does that, He's communing with us in order for our benefit and gladness to increase, as we'll see. He enlivens us that we then would both live by God and upon God in fellowship through Christ. How is it that God does this? Well, we mentioned David. How is it that David was 
crushed. It's a simple word by an ordained minister, a prophet. Nathan came and said, Thou art the man. And David's world broke down. It's not that his circumstances changed, but what did change was the powerful working of God penetrated his heart so that now he's abased before the Lord. And the one who previously was plotting his uh, adulterous affair and then plotting the murder of the husband of the woman with whom he committed adultery is now cut through and brought low. See, how? By the Word of God. God's Word does that. It breaks us. But notice as well, He does this through the ministry of Christ. Notice just a couple of chapters later, Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to bring good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to them that are bound. So he uses his word to break, but he also uses his word through the ministry of Christ to heal. And this is something tremendously needed for our own spiritual understanding. There's no healing apart from the ministry of Christ. None. Religion can't heal. Doctrine can't heal. Practice can't heal. It requires the ministry of the living Christ. Christ alone heals. Christ alone revives. Christ alone takes the Word of God which would destroy us and He through His mediation so orders it so that that which would destroy us now heals us. He does so, of course, through His work on our behalf as He bore the wrath of God. He Himself crushed judiciously, being crushed in judgment that our crushing would be of a gracious sort in order that He would then dwell with us. So Christ then revives us. He takes the Word of God which convicts. He wields that. But He also wields it for our soul's consolation. So that He revives our soul. You remember we read this, of course. He reads in the scroll of Isaiah and He says, He begins to say, as we're told, this day, this Word is fulfilled. The Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What's his point? I am the anointed one. So Christ then is the one who heals. He revives the spirit of the humble, revives the heart of the contrite ones. Come to me, we read this, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's so many different ways that Christ discusses this. Are you thirsty? I'll give you something to drink. Are you hungry? My flesh is meat indeed. My blood is drink indeed. You see, the thing that Christ gives to revive us is Himself and His ministry for us. And all of this is being built up. Remember, preceding this, of course, is Isaiah 53, where you have the great testimony of Christ's suffering. And then you have the ministry of His uh, uh, gospel going forth and it's continuing to go forth. Now He's correcting people and He's convicting people over their sin. But He's also speaking a word in grace saying unto them, I am the one who heals you. The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me. And He's ordained that I should be the one who ministers and binds up what's broken. It's Christ, and it's only Christ that heals. It's Christ, and it's only Christ that makes whole. Let's make this clear. It's not your marriage improving. It's not your children being converted. It's not your health being restored. Those things are good, and we desire them, and we cry out to God for them, and we ought never to stop for that. But that's not what heals 
our broken heart. Only Christ heals. Period. But not just Christ as it were known about, but Christ who comes near and dwells in us. The High and Holy One who dwells with Him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Do you realize this? Not everyone who is broken has a reason to expect healing. So the world has this false counsel. They spin it, don't they? You know, oh, you're having a tough time. Cheer up. Things will get better. What are you talking about? Well, everything's going to work out for good. No, it's not. Not everything worked out for Judas's good, did it? Not everything worked out for Nero's good, did it? Not everything worked out for any unbeliever's good, has it? It has ended up for God's glory, but for their tremendous judgment. The unbeliever, apart from Christ, has no hope. And the brokenness they feel is the harbinger. It's the forerunner. It's the whisper of the unending brokenness that will consume them forever. Every unbeliever's grief in this world is a pat on the back compared to the brokenness that will consume them forever. But brethren, your brokenness, if gracious, is the Lord's preparing for His fellowship with you through Christ to provide to you comforts the world can't understand. And your brokenness is the worst that you'll experience because Christ is already given to you and one day He will manifest before all of the world His glorious work of grace in you. So who may expect it? Not the wicked, but rather those who indeed long for what here God holds forth. As we close, let us do so with a few points of application. Here we have a degree of comfort to be given to you who are cast down at the sight of your sin, to you who are cast down because of the brokenness of your own life and circumstances, to you who have the felt absence of your Savior for any variety of reasons. But you only have it as you come under the brokenness and say as it were unto the Lord, you're the high and lofty one who dwells and inhabits eternity. But you also say that you inhabit the broken and contrite heart. Hear, O God, let this be your dwelling place. We tend to despise broken things. But God looks at it and says, that's where I want to be. Isn't it true that Satan loves to tell us you're broken, there's no hope for fellowship with God? Where in fact, the opposite is true. You're broken, now there's hope for fellowship with God. Now there's hope to enjoy the Lord. Now there's hope to abandon all false pretenses, all false hopes, all false assurances that can never support the weight of your soul. All has been taken from you, and yet the only thing that has been taken from you is your false hope. And now God has said, I will be your life. I will provide you all that you need. And our ears open up and hear Christ saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bind up and to heal the brokenhearted. Brethren, hide not your brokenness from God. Go to Him Say, here is mine. Heal it. Here, as we anticipate coming to the Lord's table, we have need then to call upon Him, crying out that He would do what He has promised to do. The promise calls for faith. 
Here's a promise. I dwell with Him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So what do we do this evening? We say to God, You know more than I know. You certainly know more than others know. The degree of my own brokenness and contrition. Would You dwell with me and revive me? And think of what encouragement you have as we look in the Lord's mercies to tomorrow. Who is it? And who is it only that heals? It's Christ. Who is it that offered His body and blood for us? Christ. Who is it that says, this is my body broken for you? Christ. Who is it that says, this cup is the New Testament in my blood? It's Christ. Who is it that says, eat? Christ does. Who is it that says, drink? Christ does. And as He does, what is He doing? He's giving Himself to the broken and contrite ones and saying, I am yours to dwell with you. Whereas this is the intense manifestation, display, and application of that love. It is not the only manifestation. It's not the duration of His love. It is the fresh, as it were, renewal of His love. The covenant is renewed at the sacrament so that we would know that His Word is true. I will be your God. You will be My people. I will dwell in you. You will be with Me. So brethren, come and look to Him. Yes, who is great, greater than we can imagine. And yet also, is one who delights to dwell in Christ in the heart of one who is broken and contrite. Would you stand with me for prayer?